2: You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Dan Baird's interview with the co-writer for *Rustin*, Julian Brees, and my interview with the film star,
1: Coleman Domingo. So, an epic demonstration in our nation's capital, organized in eight weeks. Do this, Doctor King. Own your power. There's one person who can organize an event of this scale. <laughs>
0: What the hell would Ross then? His attention-grabbing antics make him an easy target. Wow. let's not mention the
1: unmentionable. Our new offices! A demonstration made up of angelic troublemakers such as yourselves. Make sure you are there! On August 28th, black, white, young, old, rich, working class, poor, will descend yeah. on Washington, D.C this new generation is restless and angry the pacifist is opposed to using violence but must be prepared to receive it you're relevant. it's friday night i've been called worse welcome everyone
3: to the next best picture podcast where we are talking with julian Brees, the co-writer of the new film rustin julian thank you so much for joining us today
0: thank you for having me
3: yeah this is awesome I am really excited to talk to you about this film. Uh, Rustin was one of my favorites out of the Toronto Film Festival. And it's so great to finally have some acknowledgement of Bayard Rustin in mainstream media. I wanted to ask you when or how you first learned about Bayard Rustin and his position in history, because he's still, for so many people, such an unknown quantity.
0: Well, first, thank you for saying that about the film. Like it's um, it's been a a, a decade long journey. 2013 is when I started on the project. So, wow. you know, I really appreciate hearing that. And I wasn't able to go to Toronto because of the strike. Um, so, yeah. Um, but yeah i mean i first heard about bayard i mean i first learned about bayard when i was a teenager uh and was i was in high school but i did not learn about him in high school um uh, because you know they were not covering him uh he was kind of the invisible man um in the civil rights uh movement um so i i learned about him you know the same way all teenagers learn about things they're not supposed to on the internet and, and i uh you know i was really coming to terms with the fact that this gay thing is gonna stick with me. And um, so, you know, I was just looking at, just looking for examples of positive outcomes um, for being gay and black. Um, And Bayard Rustin was, you know, Bayard Rustin and James Baldwin were the standouts for me. And, um, you know, Bayard, you know, just his stature, that famous picture of him with Martin Luther King, I mean, it just blew me away. And even, you know, later learning that uh, Bayer Rustin was Martin Luther King's mentor. So the uh, most, like the most famous religious figure, probably next to or after the Pope, Martin Luther King, his mentor was a gay man. Um, So, I mean, that was really profound
3: for me as a young person, for sure. And you said you... Came onto this project in 2013. Um, Had you ever considered writing about him before that? Or was it just when you heard about this project happening?
0: You know, 2013 was an interesting time. I was, um, you know, uh, out of film school and, you know, it was... I feel like the industry really shifted big time after the financial crash in 2008. And then there was, you know, the strike, but it was really the financial crash. And so all you were seeing were temples. So it was all about, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean and, you know, Marvel was starting to emerge. And um, so the first script that I wrote actually was a a film about the ballroom scene in New York city, which, you know, uh, famously uh, covered in a, um, uh, Paris is burning and then yeah. you know, the Ryan Murphy series that recently came out so that was my first script ball and it got into the top 10 of the nickel it won some you know some other fancy screenwriting awards and I thought I was set. I was like <laughs> I'm about to be you know um you know uh, Aaron Sorkin out here and absolutely not <laughs> that's not what happened um getting them film made like ball was, you know, near impossible. Nobody had money for a a feature like that. So the idea of doing a film about Bayard Rustin just wasn't something that I thought was possible for me to pursue, especially at that time, I was temping, um, on studio lots, you know, doing the storied coffee runs and, you know, sneaking, (laughs) sneaking reading scripts and, um, I haven't slipped my scripts into the coverage system a couple of times. They're like, why are we reading this? Um, so I learned a lot in that <laughs> in, in during that time. But when I heard in 2013, I heard that, you know, Lance Black was um, planning to produce a film about Bayard Rustin. And when I heard that, I was all over it. Uh, you know, my manager went after it for me and I wrote a long email to um, to Lance. Just explaining to him my uh, my passion for the subject matter and my admiration of buyer and why I'm the right person. And it's my calling. And um and I got the meeting and we hit it off. And, um you know, like I said, like the at that time, there were just not a lot of black writers and there were just fewer writers in the system, period. But you could count the black writers who were consistently working on, you know, one, maybe two hands out here. Um, and so even if it even if films about black uh, people um, centering black people, uh, black people were not writing them. So, you know, I really give Lance a lot of credit for hiring a uh, a black gay man to write a black gay man's
3: uh, story. Absolutely. And it, it feels sort of very much in the spirit of Bayard Rustin that you two would collaborate on this since it was so about intersectionality and bringing people together from wow. across different boundaries um what was that collaboration like working with dustin on this script
0: i mean well i think like at that time like i mean for me lance was you know i mean he was someone who i looked up to i mean i think that all like you know queer um uh you know writers and filmmakers out here you know that moment when he won the oscar was huge um and you know especially with the uh what he won it for you know um a story about harvey milk so i think the idea of working with him was you know really exciting to me and you know i mean he you know is just seeing him at work you know uh he's you know like he gets up at 7 a.m in the morning and writes I'm doing that uh, <laughs> Too early for me, <laughs> very disciplined guy. And, um, you know, and I, the, the process, you know, for me was to find the movie. So, you know, he really did trust me with that. And I, um, I was very eager. So I left my temp job, took money out of the little savings that I had and moved to New York for three months. Cause I, I thought that's what, Researchers, you know, do and um, and uh, you know, but it was good. I was able to do uh, one-on-one interviews. I did about 19 hours of interviews with people who knew Byard, so people who worked with him on the march. Wow! And uh, Walter Nagel, who was his um, his life partner, um, you know, just really gave me incredible insights into him that you just could not read in a book. The kind of the kind of insights
3: you need for a story. Did you get 19 hours of interview? That's incredible. Did you have any access to any of his writings when you were writing the screenplay?
0: Yeah, yeah. So there are, um, the Rustin papers are housed in the Library of Congress. So I would go to DC, which I'm actually from DC. So um, yeah, I grew up in DC, like, you know, maybe 10 minutes away from the site of the March on Washington. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So um the so yeah I, the his papers are there they're housed in the Library of Congress, and then um his speeches are um uh actually there's a collection of uh, speeches by him that Michael Long has compiled called and the book is we M- um what is it I must resist or we must resist and yeah I mean reading his words hearing his words hearing his speeches just were that was you know. Um, getting his voice in the script was really important to me and i mean coleman pulled it off brilliantly and brought you know things to it that um you know even people who knew him got chills so
3: yeah yeah Yeah. that that was going to be my very next question was how difficult was it to capture his voice through your pen
0: yeah, I have to say like in writing like, you know, there're things that I'm okay at. Like I think that like capturing character voices is like something that I like to do. I kind of like am can a uh, mimic, you know. So I um like picking up his cadence, all those things. I obsess over those little things and uh you know, in the writing I'm hearing it. You know, I'm hearing the you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing the rhythm of his voice. And uh, I would say for him, it was, Bayard has this kind of aristocratic air about him. And, you know, he's very distinguished, you know, and the way that he actually speaks is affected on purpose. So his like, and, you know, it's, for him, it's a way to get people's attention. So he uses what he has, like his height, his stature, not that he wants attention or glory, it's to get people to listen to him because of what he believes in and so getting that down like you know even writing it you know that his voice is you know has this affectation to it which you know is something that the people who knew him he told me was it was really important and you see coleman go in and out of it
3: yeah it's an incredible performance uh from coleman domingo in, in that part just mind-blowing uh, how he captures this man but A large part of that is also the writing that he has to work with. I'm curious, you know, you go through so many drafts of these things before it eventually gets to filming. What was the most difficult thing for you to cut from the screenplay?
0: For me, there were flashbacks that some of them are still in the film, but from his younger years that I really felt contextualized. I knew early on that the action of the film was going to be the march, like, you know, those months leading up to the march, you know, that frenetic energy of him and his mission impossible, um, I call it. But so much interesting about his life, you know, I mean, he's been, you know, an activist, you know, through the 30s, 40s, 50s. And um, so many of those experiences did inform things that happened during the march. And so there was um, there were flashbacks. There's still one from when he was in Tennessee, the bus scene where he gets beaten outside of the bus, which I'm really glad that one is in the film because it really shows what he's all about. He holds is about demonstrating to people um, what violence, um, you know what violence brings you know having people look at it you can't see that if it's violence against violence um so uh but then yeah so there was some ashland prison he was in prison in ashland um uh for demonstrations and he yeah so i loved those scenes i had to cut them but yeah i made the choice to cut them at a certain point you have to like kill your darlings you know
3: yeah, absolutely. And you said you knew very early on that you wanted to focus on just the lead up to the march and everything. Did did you also know early on that that was how you were going to end it with him, you know, cleaning up after everything because that seems so perfectly in tune with his ethos of, you know, getting down in the muck and everyone contributing.
0: Yeah, I think that like for me when I At this point, I've done a few biographical projects and I really I've never been a big fan of cradle to grave stories, you know, as like thinking about the kind of movies I I would want to write. I remember Capote really uh, influenced me, really impacted me when I saw it. I just thought it was so elegantly done and just taking that moment in his life. um, And within that was so much. You could tell the story of who he was as a person, the essence of him. right but then also tell the story of um, this moment this defining moment in his life and how that you know how that molded him so you know i think for me like biographical i see it as like a way to really capture the essence of someone uh, we you know if we're doing it, it's about like a, a great man what is the moment where they became great and so, you know, with um the March on Washington, I mean, I feel he had so many tests. This was the biggest test. Uh and, you know, the there's a personal story to it that, you know, is um I feel like this, like I am a I am a research person. I thought I was going to be an academic and not so much. My advisor was like, "You should creatively write," which is not what you want to hear when you're, you know, turning your <laughs> academic. <laughs> yeah. yeah um
3: but very familiar <laughs>
0: yeah. so i love like in you know when you're researching someone if you can find those moments where you're like boom that is cinematic that's a movie you know because and you know you don't want to just look every movie is a fiction even documentary documentarians don't like to like you know admit that but If you can find those true moments that feel cinematic, like that was the clear ending. Like Bayard, he couldn't go to the White House with the other, with the leadership. But for him, that was not the, that wasn't the uh, win. The win, like he won when that march was pulled off. And for him, you know, just going and picking up trash, that was, you know, that was enough for him. That's all he needed. I thought it was a really, it's a really powerful statement about, Him, and that's true. I didn't have to make it up; it was gifted to me. Those things that are gifted to you in biographical, you
3: yeah, come close. (laughs) It's true. Sometimes you just gotta give you what history gives you. It's just perfect. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We're coming up on the end of our time together, but I (laughs) wanted to ask before we before we go because I feel like the world has, in some ways taken a few steps forward since bayard's time and in some ways it's taken a few steps backward and i want you know you've spent so much time with this project immersing yourself in his life what is the best way do you think for those viewers who are really touched by this film to follow in bayard rustin's footsteps and honor his memory
2: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and
0: conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, I think there are so many divisions right now. There are, you know, on all sides of you know the issues that we're seeing, the rollbacks that we're seeing right now. You know, the book bans in Texas. When do we think you know we would ever see book bans happening? I'm sorry, in Florida, and um, you know the uh, the laws that are changing in different states. um, You know that are. You know, rollbacks from the progress that we've seen, the homophobic violence, trans violence that we're seeing throughout the country. I think that with Bayard, everyone's angry. Bayard was a gentle person. He believed in, you know, being gentle, the nonviolent philosophy. He lived it. Everyone who knew him says that. And I think that if we could just take a step back and, you know, really see things from the other side, people are scared. It's irrational, in you know a lot of instances, but people are scared, and you know we're not communicating with each other uh, in ways that are impactful. And sometimes that way that is stillness. Sometimes that way is like speaking in a way that is, you know, empathetic and you know trying to provide like information as opposed to being accusatory. With buyer, it's it's so simple. But, um, you know, I think it's something that I think that Bayard, we wrote it. I, I wrote it in 2013 when it was set up at another place. And then in around 2019, it, uh, you know, went on to Netflix um, and, you know, George and Lance worked on it. And this was the right time. Who knew this was the right time for the film to come out? Bayard's message is just as relevant
3: today as it was, you know, in 1963. Amen. <laughs> Julian Brees, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank um, you. So and much. Thank you for thank you for the film. And what what are you working on now? What can we look forward to next from you?
0: Well, um, so I finished the screenplay for um Ailey about uh, the uh, life of Alan Ailey. Ah! Which I'm so excited about and very taken ah. directing that. And um I am, uh, yeah, and actually I'm working now on, um, with Lee Daniels, the Sammy Davis Jr. limited series for Hulu, that I'm really excited about. Fantastic.
3: I'm going to write a rom-com, like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) As a former dancer, I'm very looking forward now to that Ailey project. Oh, that's very exciting to hear. (laughs) Julian, thanks again.
0: Thank you, Dan. Have a good one.
1: Bye. Your mere presence could derail the fight for racial justice in this country a good 10-15 years. On the day that I was born black, I was also born a homosexual. We're calling for a peaceful march on Washington. We are committed to the cause of altering the trajectory of this country towards freedom. They either believe in freedom and justice for all,
2: or they do not. All right, everyone, I'm being joined here by Coleman Domingo, the lead actor for the new film Rustin. Coleman, it feels so good to be able to see you out and about on the campaign trail. I saw it the other day here in New York, and I cannot tell you enough how happy I am to finally see you being able to hear responses to this film, especially for your performance. Um, It's a truly, truly powerful and charismatic uh, work that you've done here, uh, bringing Rustin's story to the screen.
1: Thank you so much, man. I appreciate that.
2: So... We've been following your career now for quite a while. You're you're a hardworking actor who has been in a variety of different projects. Would you say that this was, on the film level, the biggest undertaking that you have had to
1: do as an actor? Absolutely, in every single way. Uh, it's um, it's a monumental role. Uh, it, it requires so much of you. Um, I mean, when it comes not only the the research because it's based on a real live breathing human being who was marginalized in history books, so so you know who was a a dear friend and close advisor to Martin Luther King, but also this character has a lot of size in many ways. I think that he's, you know, he was a Quaker and you know born you know born and raised a Quaker and he was a young communist and he spoke with them a mid-Atlantic standard accent of his own making. <laughs> and uh, he played the lute and he sang in a tenor voice, Elizabethan love songs. There was a lot of preparation that I needed for him. And then to also I if I believe it was 138 pages of the script, I'm on 135 of them. <laughs> so so that that I know that would be very um demanding of uh, my mind, body, and spirit. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that I was really in tune every single day to get the job done.
2: Now, who were you able to consult uh, that was still around from this era for this? Because I imagine in your research, you probably talked to some people, I imagine, right?
1: Yeah, I did. Um, specifically with this, I had a few conversations with Rochelle Horowitz, who's also featured in the film. Uh, Rochelle, who, um, when she was 19 years old, she organized transportation for the March in Washington, and also had access to Walter Nagel, um, Bayard's uh, partner, for 10 years before his um, passing. Uh, and I was able to get some of the, the personal notes about him, which was really useful. Um, the beautiful thing is I've been able to work in this time period for a few films uh, especially like Selma where I had access to people like Andrew Young and John Lewis at the time to ask them about you know to fill my knowledge up about the timeline so um so it, it, I guess I've been researching and working on this for many many years uh because I've had a lot inside me and stored in my in my arsenal in order to prepare me for this.
2: Absolutely and as uh, an out owl- Black man. I'm curious to know, like, just in terms of the personal connection of playing somebody of this magnitude as well for yourself, I imagine there has to also be um, a great deal of weight and also a personal connection there for you as well uh, when playing this role.
1: I think so. I think he's uh, once I discovered by Rustin when I was about a junior in college, when I was in the African American Student Union. And I stumbled upon his name uh, th- through a conversation. and then there was more details about him. and I was really confused as why I had never heard of him. Mm-hmm. And then I of course, when I found out because he was uh, out at the time, that's exactly why he was so marginalized in the history books. yeah, and I knew I knew that this is, you know, so he became one of my personal heroes in terms of like how he 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 went into rooms as his full self at a time. When truly it would cost him his life, his livelihood, his work—you name it—he yeah. was abs- he would absolutely be ostracized in every single way. But no one could deny that he was one of the smartest men in the room. They couldn't deny that he was the the most excellent strategist and organizer that this country had ever known. So no one could deny that, and he didn't deny himself. So I feel like he's always been sort of a, a north star for me in many ways, and of how to be in the world and not to let. The fact that you're uh, queer be a limitation. Um, to just know it's just such a small part of every, of who you are. It's about your thoughts, your ideals, your passion, your your fire, your um your wit. You know, there's so much more. And I think you know, I, I think that that's where we're very akin in that way. I think that I, I think I don't walk into the room just I walk into the room in every single way that I am. You know what I mean? And I don't leave anything behind. Uh, so I think that, and I've been met with that sort of love and embrace because uh uh which is different than Bayard's uh journey uh so i think that i'm, I'm sort of living out sort of my dreams you know for him yeah
2: you've worked now with george c wolf a, a couple of times here um i think a lot of people will look back on ma rainey's black bottom and see how theatrical that production was and its staging. Uh, Here, obviously, it's a bit more opened up, of course. And so I want to know, though, how does his sensibilities as a stage director and as a film director kind of mesh to allow you to have creative freedom
1: in your performance? Well, George Seawolf, at his greatest, is he is definitely an actor's director. Mm -hmm. He's a dream for actors because he makes sure that you have time to do your process. A lot of times on film sets... It's about the lighting department and, uh, and the camera department. Everyone else gets their time and actors sort of get the short shrift. George makes sure that performance is first and that comes from his years in a the theater where he doesn't mind you know, rehearsing for three full weeks and that's full rehearsals for three weeks. And that's sitting at the table, um, looking at every nuance up on every page yeah. and making decisions together. Um, so that's what's really unique about him and then he also knows how to, I think that he's also had a journey of learning how to play in a cinematic space to allow things to breathe. I think that it's a beautiful thing because I think he's got, he has so many excellent skills from the theater and just being a storyteller that I, that I love that he still has a sense of theatricality in his work as a filmmaker that makes him unique you know, I think that every, every, every filmmaker is different. I think it draws on his strengths to make it theatrical in many ways and to make it feel staged at times. So that's what I love, that he's that perfect combination.
2: Yeah, and you work opposite uh, across from so many great actors in this film. It's really a, a really fantastic ensemble. Um, is there anyone in particular that you found yourself getting goosebumps uh, working opposite aside side in
1: this movie? The are two people. I would say if you get the opportunity to work with Audrey McDonald, it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're just, you're a little nervous. You're a little intimidated because especially I've been a fan of hers for so many years and just to be able to share, we only had, we had two scenes together. One was actually uh, not in the film, but we, we had this beautiful dance together. You know, this she's so prepared and then so open. I just found that it was just really a beautiful. All I had to do was really listen and respond with hurry. I mean, but that's what George, George filled filled the space with great theater actors. I also have Jeffrey Wright, who I've always been a long admirer of. And so, you know, I think that we just go toe to toe and we have a nice dance together. I love uh, characters who, have figured out a lot of their backstory and they're coming in with different gifts for you to play off of. And I feel like that's what I do as well. So that was the perfect storm uh, of acting. So you can always make something kinetic and beautiful every single take.
2: Yeah. I, I definitely think that comes through. I, I especially love that one scene where uh, Jeffrey Wright is prying at you about the Pasadena in- incident and the way that your character reacts to it in that moment is absolutely heartbreaking. Cause Ah, uh, you can see how much he's trying to internally like hold it within, and it's just destroying him on the inside.
1: Yes, absolutely. That was um, I just uh, I just listened to Jeffrey and let it all the bottom drop out of Bayer Rustin, because that's all that was it. He could not have a facade at all, and th- it was his. Uh, we were watching him crumble and yeah. watching all that confidence um, implode.
2: And I think I told you this the other day, too, that throughout this movie, there are a number of stand-up and cheer, fist-pumping moments. Um, I'm curious to know, have you had a chance yet to experience in a theater when an the audience gets a chance to react to one of your show-stopping monologues?
1: <laughs> I, I did. I did. I, I was at the um, in Washington, D.C. for the very first screening that I, I'd seen uh, that was introduced by President Obama and Michelle Obama. And it was for uh the HBCU First Look Film Festival. It's the first of its kind, which is great yeah. supporting um historically black colleges. And so there was Howard University and 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 um uh, another school, uh Morgan State. They so it was like a whole audience of like 19, 20-year-old kids. These are the kids that were the same age of the people who were helping Bayard organize the March on Washington. And they were just it was robust and like gasps and <laughs> lots of applause and it, it really was like a call and response. And I think that's the beautiful thing. and I think you don't get that a lot in the cinema. Mm-hmm. You get that when something has a bit of stagecraft to it. Yeah, it feels like theater in that way. like you know that you have permission to respond. yeah, and i I, I don't I don't think I've been in in a theater to experience that. And it happened at least like six times you know, which was great. And then at the end, everyone was sobbing, which was beautiful. Um, it was, it, it really felt like a shared experience that you would get in the theater.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely hear you on that for sure. And it's refreshing to see that in this type of uh, theatrical experience versus a $200 million uh, theatrical experience every now and then. So yeah. I'm with yeah. you. Tell me a little bit about also to the friendship that uh, he had with Martin Luther King, because one of the things that I uh, liked about the I guess you could call a conflict within this movie is how Martin Luther King is his friend, but he's reluctant to essentially back his friend when the timing is inconvenient for their friendship. And so it kind of like builds to this moment where he publicly endorses uh, Rustin by the end of the film. And I I just found that to be so heartwarming uh, because at the end of the day, he just really wanted that validation from his friend and who could not be moved by that.
1: Yeah, you know, There is, I was discussing this with a friend the other day. There's, especially in the 1960s, when people were a bit, um, shall I say, a bit more conservative when it comes to uh, relationships with openly queer people. Yeah. And if someone had, and some cisgendered, you know, man had a deep friendship, a close brotherhood with this openly queer man. Everyone in the world assumes it's sexual. They, they because they're just sexualizing um, the queer person. They're they're not thinking ideas or anything else human. They're just thinking sex because that's all they can focus on. So of course, people that was the thing surrounding them that was like it was rumor hearsay, you know. And and that and they were trying to you know I feel like navigate a friend a true friendship and true brotherhood. I think there's even like a picture of them I think somewhere like when like you know I think byard is talking about something and Martin is taking a bath or something like that. I know that there's a photo out there in the world. <laughs> and, you know, that seems very suggestive, but it, it truly was. I, mean, I think Bayard has a certain tie on and they're just talking like brothers do. Yeah, But um, they were, so that was part of the thing that they were combating at that time. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, and also the movement. The movement was very conservative and really trying to, I think, the way um, Black folks believed that we needed to move forward was as a and a unified front, and this is the way we present ourselves. And the queer person had no place in it. Yeah. You know? And so that's was part of the push and pull the, with their friendship. And that was that was definitely a break for them. And I think it hurt By deeply. And I think it hurt Martin as well, because Martin was sort of between a rock and a hard place as yeah. well. And what we what I love is that the Martin in our film is not Martin after the I Have a Dream speech. He's a young man who's trying to navigate being a thoughtful leader, actually, Um, someone that Bayard has supported and and has poured his his beliefs into as well. So I think that's the thing that i And by the end of the film, you see Martin, when Martin um, publicly comes out to shed light and love on his friend and and make sure that he still has his position as deputy director to complete this mission of the March on Washington. It's part of Martin's growth. We see him grow, and then we see now he becomes the superstar that he was meant to be.
2: Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Barack and Michelle Obama before. What was their feedback to your performance into the film?
1: Ah, oh, they've been very, very complimentary. They've been very happy with it, especially for their first narrative feature. They've um, they both have given me a lot of praise and love and support. Um, and this is very near and dear to their hearts because uh, by Rustin actually. But Barack Obama said in D.C., he said, "If there was no, Bayard Rustin, for sure there would be no me." Yeah, because he said, "I'm very much inspired by Bayard Rustin." Yeah,
2: that says it all right there. Um, Coleman, we're out of time here, but I want to just compliment you one more time on such a phenomenal performance that captivated me from start to finish. And I also want to add a little tidbit here. Usually we ask our uh, guests what they have coming up next in the future. But I already know because I saw your wonderful performance in Sing Sing at TIFF, and I cannot wait to uh, have audiences experience that next year.
1: Thank you. And then and they can stay tuned for Color Purple on Christmas Day. That
2: too. That too. I'm seeing it this
1: week. I can't wait. <laughs> oh, man. Good, 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 good. I I can't wait for you to see it, man. It's, it's something special. And I'm it's, not hyping it up. It is very special.
2: It's the year of Coleman Domingo, and that in ah. itself is special. Thank you once again for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: I really appreciate you, Matt. Thank you.
2: Take care. Take care.
1: Hey everyone, thank
2: you so much for listening to Dan Baer's interview with the co-screenwriter for Rustin, Julian Brees, and my interview with the film star, Coleman Domingo, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Rustin is now currently available to stream on Netflix and is up for your consideration in all eligible categories for this year's Academy Awards, including Best Original Screenplay and Best Actor.